Um, let, let, let me pray for us, and then we'll uh, we'll get into it. God, we are thankful. Uh, we are thankful for your grace <clears throat> displayed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. We're thankful for your faithfulness to us um, as a church uh, through ups and downs and challenges. Um, and we rejoice um, that we do not have a foundation of, of shifting sand, but that our feet are on the rock. And so as we continue to look at some of these doctrines, um, certainly gracious doctrines, uh, we pray that you would give us ears to hear. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, all right, so last time, admittedly, was a bit of a heavy lift. It was, understood. I got it. I knew it was going to be a little bit heavier lift, theologically, technically. Um, if you forgot everything else, if you forgot everything else from last Sunday, um, the most important thing, as we talked about pushing back against this idea of prevenient grace, kind of the competing model to the effectual calling or generation, the number one thing you could remember is it's just not supported by Scripture. That's the number one thing that you could you could remember. Um, I want to zoom out very brief, very briefly on the end of our time together, though, where I did get a little bit more technical because I think it could have been more clear in, in a one or two areas uh, that would have left uh, fewer people wondering what on earth did he just say. So, um, so remember that prevenient grace is supposed to solve the problem of how God can genuinely all call all people to repentance and faith and hold them responsible for not doing so. That's what it's supposed to solve. The Reformed answer is the effectual call. Uh, it is, enables them to do that, and people are responsible uh, just for their, for their actions, uh, even if they are left in their sin. But prevenient grace, it says that everyone, everyone has some kind of partially regenerative work done in their heart. So there's no one who is actually totally unable. There's no one who is actually totally unable. Um, and because of that, two things are true. They're truly able to respond to the gospel, and they, are, uh, they have a genuine opportunity for salvation. And because of their ability, they can be held responsible. That's what prevenient grace is supposed to do. It's supposed to tell a story about how God can, in, in fact, call everyone because everyone genuinely has an opportunity to repent and believe the gospel. And because of their ability, they can genuinely be held responsible. Without prevenient grace, as the story goes, um, God calling everyone is incoherent. Um, and it is unjust to say that God actually calls everyone without giving everyone uh, the ability to respond and holding them responsible. Remember Ryan Shelton, who wrote a book on prevenient grace. He says, as Wesley said, it is an issue of the justice of God that the sons of Adam are expected to repent if they cannot repent. Accountability without opportunity should be posited as unjust. And, us, and we kind of hit the timeout there last time and said, that actually presupposes one very controversial solution to the problem of free will, moral responsibility, and alternate possibilities that we talked about in Sunday School 1, right out of philosophy. Um, it's, and so it seems to be an uh, a conclusion that is on the foundation of a philosophical intuition that it's not entirely clear uh, is true. In fact, I think, it's, I, assert, I think it's not true. But here's what I was doing when I zoomed out past that. I, was, I gave two more examples, and I should have said this. Let's just suppose prevenient grace is true for the sake of argument. Let's suppose that everyone has a partially regenerated heart, so there's no one who's totally depraved. Does it get, does it get what it is supposed to accomplish in the system? Does it actually mean that everyone has a robust opportunity to repent and believe the gospel and are accountable because they could have done otherwise because of this ability? 
Do you remember the two things that I said that call into question whether or not it actually accomplishes that just practically? It doesn't even get what it wants on its own terms. Does anyone remember? So the first I said is, what about people who never hear the gospel despite having a heart that could potentially respond to it? Okay? What genuine ability and opportunity do they have on this view that could make them responsible despite having an enabled heart? Okay, in other words, it doesn't seem like provenient grace or having everyone having a partially regenerated heart is enough for everyone to have a genuine opportunity because you actually have to hear the gospel to have an opportunity to repent and believe the gospel. That's why faith comes by hearing. How can they believe that they haven't heard? So it's like, well, provenient grace makes sure everyone has an opportunity to repent and believe. But you can't repent and believe unless you hear the gospel. And our Arminian friends agree that there are plenty of people who do not hear the gospel. So in other words, now we've got to have prevenient grace plus everyone having heard the gospel to, to maintain the intuition here. Okay, And by the way, realizing this, there are some who hold to odd views of hearing the gospel. Uh, for example, there's a view that says everyone hears the gospel no matter what, even if it's right before they die, that they are preached the gospel specially, supernaturally. So there, there's no such thing as someone who doesn't hear the gospel. It's to preserve this intuition. Or the other, the other view is that natural revelation alone with no gospel is sufficient to believe the gospel because they're trying to preserve this intuition and get around it, all right? But I'm suggesting that, no, with prevenient grace, it doesn't get you that everyone has the, the equal ability because on the Arminians' own terms, there are people who do not hear the gospel, and God was fully aware of that. And so you need prevenient grace plus everyone hearing the gospel. And then secondly, I pointed to God's infallible foreknowledge, um, in, in, and I'm suggesting that God's infallible foreknowledge is incompatible with any ability to do otherwise, because you can't make, just to put it really, um, yeah, go to a sink to a very low level. You can't make God wrong. And God knew from eternity past this is the case. And um, if that's the case, then God infallibly knows who will repent and who will believe. And that's not the basis of his election, as we'll talk about, make very clear. But, but our Arminian friends and, the, and those who uh, put forward prevenient grace agree that God has infallible foreknowledge. But if that's the case, and he infallibly knows who's going to repent and believe and who's not, then, then people are still being held responsible despite not being able to do otherwise. Again, so now we need something like prevenient grace plus hearing the gospel plus a future that God does not know infallibly to give everyone this kind of robust opportunity that the prevenient grace is supposed to provide. It's supposed to do this heavy lifting, but without these other things, it just doesn't. By the way, on the infallible foreknowledge piece, that is why so many of the top uh, Arminian philosophers are open theists. Okay, Dean Zimmerman at Rutgers, Peter Vanenwagen at Notre Dame, Richard Swinburne, formerly at Oxford, William Hasker, these guys realize they, they're trying to preserve this robust ability to do otherwise, but if God has infallible foreknowledge, it is very difficult to see how that's compatible. So the, so it was kind of a three, so zooming out now because we're landing the plane on prevenient grace. We looked at prevenient grace, doesn't seem to be supported by scripture. It seems to rest on philosophical intuitions that are questionable. And then it's not even clear it achieves what it's supposed to within the system because of other things that the proponents of prevenient grace themselves believe. You've got to kind of add all these things together um, to get this kind of universal, genuine, robust opportunity, okay? 
Does that make sense? Is that helpful? Is that not helpful? It's not clear that it was helpful. Maybe it, maybe it was helpful. Okay, well, we're going to go ahead and uh, move on here to two, uh, two quicker objections before we turn to the doctrine of election. The first one is that Matthew 23, 37 and Acts 7, 51 show that God's calling or drawing is not always effective. All right, so can I get two readers, if I could get two readers, one to read Matthew 23, 37 and the other Acts 7, 51. And let's look at it again. We always want to be looking at the text to justify our theology and looking at the objections. So who wants to read the first one? Asher, yes. And who, uh, Josh. Go ahead, take your time, bud. At Matthew 23, no, it's okay. 2337. Yes, okay. Hey, you are not willing. See, I was trying to gather you, and you weren't willing. And so, therefore, there isn't this efficacious will. God's will is resisted here in drawing. That's the idea. Okay, Acts 7.51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Okay, great. And so here's another example. This is the Holy Spirit being resisted. And so there isn't this effectual work of the Holy Spirit drawing. Okay, well, let me just briefly say, I, this is, these are a little bit, in, oh man, I don't want to, it's just, it's challenging to take these seriously. Because if you actually look at the text and just give it a careful, not even necessarily a careful reading, it becomes very clear that what's going on is the people resisting this prophetic call that God has to the people. Let's look at, at Matthew 23 first. Notice that right before this passage, it looks what it says. Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And then he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that city that kills its prophets and stones those who are sent to it. The idea is this, this the, the story that we see in the Old Testament over and over and over and over and over, that the prophets come and they declare what is the case and they lay out this covenant lawsuit against the people and call them to repentance and the people sin. That's what it's talking about. And, I'm, and I will mention this. It says, it does not say how often I would have gathered you. It says, how often I would have gathered your children, the children of Jerusalem, contrasted with the religious leaders who were always doing the killing of all these prophets. Okay? But the main, but the main takeaway is um, that, it's, that it is simply talking about the prophets that God has sent and his sovereignty as an act of mercy, and the people just don't listen. It's not talking about an effectual call. The whole point of distinguishing between an effectual call and a general call is that there is a call that can be resisted. And it is the general proclamation of the gospel and repentance. And we see that uh, through the prophets. Um, Acts 7.51 is the even more explicit example. Let me turn over there briefly. Acts 
So you looked at the neck, so you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets, next verse, did your fathers not persecute? Every Reformed person, every Arminian person believes that the, 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 the people of God resisted, by and large, the, besides the faithful remnant, the call of the, of the prophets. And they killed them, and they stoned them, and they rejected what they were saying. Um, but that's, it's very difficult. To, it's, it's kind of like a non sequitur. It's kind of irrelevant, in other words. This is not some kind of objection to the idea that there's an effectual call. It's saying that the general call um, can often go unheeded. And, and to that, everyone would say, yes and amen. That's right. That's exactly right. That's why there has to be, that's why there is a general call, and there is, there is an effective call that opens one's heart to see to that. Just like Lydia, God opened her heart so she could receive the things. Uh, that Paul was was discussing. Okay, um, so I, I really think that these are th these two texts that are sometimes brought to bear are just totally off base, and they're talking about something totally different in biblical theology. The prophetic call to the people of Israel, uh, and they're not talking about an, an in, uh, they're not talking about individual justification or, or salvation. Okay, at all. Any yeah. Yeah, they're not listening. They're not listening to the word of God. They don't fear the Lord. Yeah, you might say, I mean, that would be kind of a newer, like a new um, a New Testament designation for, yeah, what this would be. Yeah, uncircumcised in heart, certainly. Yes, because it's Romans 2 where Paul says that I'm going to circumcise you with those circumcision. Uh, I'm sorry, that the person who is a Jew is a Jew inwardly who has their heart circumcised. So, yeah, this is the idea is you are someone who is uncircumcised in heart and ears. And it defines it. You always resist the Holy Spirit. It's like you, you, you're, you, you don't do what God is calling you to do. You're a stubborn people. You have a callous heart. You have a heart of stone. You don't have a heart of flesh. Right? Yeah. But it, again, it's, it's, a, it's a really a point about biblical theology. Over and over, God has sent the prophets to call to his people. And they have, by and large, not listened. And that's why they're in exile waiting for a Messiah. It's not a point about effectual calling and, and how the spirit works on individuals is not not really there any other questions about that one or those two okay finally let me just address this final objection that effectual calling amounts to coercion and to coerced love okay if the calling and you've noticed by the way this is why I've, one of the reasons i've chosen some of you know this doctrine as irresistible grace okay some of you heard that right irresistible grace I don't like irresistible grace. It sounds like someone gets pulled into the kingdom of God. They're like, no, I don't want to be a Christian. I don't want to. And there they are. It's irresistible. It doesn't communicate the right thing. It's effective. It works. That's the idea. Okay, it's certainly, it works certainly every time. But when you, especially if you think about it as irresistible grace, it's like, oh, this is coercion and love. It's like, it's like uh, the, the love, it's like a, a beauty, I know beauty, what's her name? It's like Belle in the Beast's Castle. You will stay here forever. It's like, love me. You know, it's like, this isn't, this, this, this seems like coercion. So let me just say two things. Number one, it isn't coercion because of regeneration. The picture I saw that gave the person kind of yelling and screaming into the kingdom of God that doesn't have any regeneration in it. The doctrine of regeneration says that, that God changes people's desires and their will. Okay? That is the opposite of coercion. For example, people change their mind all the time because their desires change. 
That doesn't mean that they were coerced. That doesn't mean that they were coerced because their desires changed. Should it be objected that their choice wasn't the reason for their changed desire? You just got to point out, folks, if you look inside your heart, you just, on especially on a moment-to-moment basis, you just don't have much control over what you desire. You can say, well, I don't want to. You have a control over what you do. But I mean, if I'd say, you know, desire liver and onions or, you know, I, the one I, example I like to give is when did, when, did you, um, when did you choose to find your spouse lovely or attractive? Not to be confused with when did I choose to pursue them or whatever, but when did you choose to think that they were attractive or lovely? Like, well, I found myself thinking that. I'm not sure that I manufactured it in my head. I found myself with that appraisal of them. I found myself desiring of them. When did you choose to desire candy? Well, I don't know that I chose to desire it. I had some and I liked it. That's the full story. You know? So the whole purpose here is to say that God does a work in people's hearts. So their desires change. So their desires change. So their wants change. So their affections change. No less than when I when when you come along when someone comes to uh, alongside a potential spouse, and uh, they go from okay, who is this person? I don't know who they are. And after a while, they're like, oh my, you know, I find myself, you know, attracted to this person, or I feel like this person is lovely or delightful or whatever. And there's not like a and this is the day I went home and said I'm choosing to find them lovely just doesn't happen like that. Similarly, in, in a way that sometimes, you might, well, nowadays you might be call it organic, uh, the, the, God changes people's desires. He gives them a new heart, and so they want to repent and believe the gospel. And everyone has to give an account of where that desire comes from. How does a desire for godliness come from people who hate the light, cannot obey God, and cannot please God? That's part of what the effectual calling and regeneration doctrine is supposed to explain that a people left to themselves could not manufacture that kind of a desire. They would never find themselves with that kind of a desire because of depravity, okay? So while I would agree that calling without regener- uh, you know, an effectual calling without regeneration would be coerced love, regeneration is, no, God graciously changes people's hearts to desire Him. Um, and, and that's not some kind of bizarre phenomena that we only see in salvation. People's hearts change to desire things all the time. Uh, it's, not a, it's not an advanced concept, okay? It's just that God is sovereign over it. And yes, God is sovereign over when the, the moment at which in the desires, he accounts for the desires that you found your spouse attractive or that you uh, were, in, were thrilled by pursuing a particular career path or whatever the case. God's sovereign over those desires no more or less than he's sovereign over the desires to change, change a sinner's heart, okay? Any questions about that? Any questions about the coerced love of, uh, uh, objection? So yeah, just in sum, everyone finds themselves with desires and everyone can ask the question, where did those come from? No matter what. Your desires about, for whatever. Desires for yeah, anything. Could be food, it could be relationship, it could be whatever. Everyone finds themselves with desires, and everyone can ask, how did I have those desires? And the answer here is, well, God's sovereign over desires, 
And in the case of regeneration, God brings about desires for godliness. That's it. Okay? And therefore, it's not anyone goes kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God. All right, so as we close here, let me just say, um, the effectual calling and regeneration answer the question that arose at the end of the last module. If because of the pervasive effects of sin, no one can desire things that please God, like the desire to repent and follow Jesus, how does anyone ever become a Christian? That is what this is supposed to explain according to Scripture. Um, God effectively calls, draws, and regenerates by the Spirit and His Word those who are dead in sin such that they are imparted with spiritual life and are able to desire and rightly discern the things of God. While the external call of God through the gospel precedes the internal effective call, after all, one must be called to something, the effective call, the inner call, and regeneration are functionally simultaneous with one another and can really be understood as different aspects of the same phenomena. So we even talked about calling it directed regeneration and smashing them together. Okay, and then finally, here's the next question. If people must be effectually called and regenerated in order to repent and believe the gospel and inevitably do so, what explains why certain people are called and regenerated leading to repentance and belief while others remain in their sin? And the answer that Scripture provides is God's decree. God's decree Chapter 3 of the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Um, it is divided conceptually into a few parts, and I will try to break it up cleanly and give some representative text like I have gone uh, already, trying to, um, uh, yeah, trying to buttress each point, but falling far, far short of some ex exhaustive catalog. I mean, there are truly a, a, so many different texts that could be brought to bear uh, to justify some of these things. But I want to look at these uh, paragraphs in chapter 3 together as we look at the nature of God's decree. And we need, gonna, need to get our readers ready because we're going to, again, we're going to see it in the text. You've got to see your theology in the text. Uh, I'll lube up my vocal cords here. Okay. 3.1, first paragraph of chapter 3. God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things. That means all. All things means all things. Whatsoever comes to pass. Yet, so as thereby is God neither the author of sin, nor hath fellowship with any therein, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature. And that's the idea of God changing people's desires and wills, so they do what they want to do, but what they want to do is different. Nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away. What that means is God isn't doing everything directly and miracling every single cause. God sees fit to have secondary, tertiary uh, causes, but rather established in which appears his wisdom in disposing all things and power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. Okay, so the first element you see here is um, meticulous predetermination. Meticulous, meaning just down to every detail. Down to every detail, not to be confused with a more general concept of God kind of has a general plan, and he's making sure the general plan works, kind of like we want to play 
you know, a more offensive attack strategy during this football game or whatever. And that's not it. Meticulous. Every detail, every play, every dust mote, every hair on every head. That's the idea. That's the meticulous aspect. And that these things were determined beforehand and are brought to pass by God's sovereignty. So um, I'm, I have it. I have this kind of broken up uh, conceptually. I have three that, uh, well, you'll see. You'll see. I don't need, I don't need to see right now. So anyways, let's get, let's get some readers ready. Um, uh, we've got, uh, what, six or seven texts here, and, uh, and uh, um, we're going to read through all of them. All right, Proverbs 16.33, auctioning off. Proverbs 16.33. Who would like to read that? Michael. Uh, Proverbs 21.1, going once, going twice. Glenn. Amos 3.6. Amos 3.6. Chris. Isaiah 46.8 through 11. Isaiah 46, 8 through 11, Noah, Matthew 10, 29 and 30, Josh, Ephesians 1, 11, Katie, Acts 2, 22 and 23, let's read that, Ben, and then finally Acts 4, 23 through 27. Mike, you go by Mike, right? Okay, I was going to say, was it Mike Gold or Mike? Mike, Mike, yes, thank you. Yes, sorry. Who said that? Oh, yes. All right, yes. With a nice, now a nice loud voice, everyone here, and a little bit of velocity. Okay. So the think of when you think of lot, think of something like a die. Okay, and you you throw the die, right? And then there's this random seeming tiny little thing that happens. A certain particular die face shows up. It's out of everyone's control, and the point here is that every turn of that die face is from the Lord. Even the small, seemingly random, tiny turns of dice are under the sovereignty of God. The lot is cast into the lap, but every turn, every rotation that it makes is from the Lord. All right? Meticulous. That's the meticulous part. Proverbs 21, 1. Okay, so here's the idea of God turning the heart of the king by working through his desires, right? So it's not that he forces the king to do all these things in the sense that it's against his will, but he actually turns his heart. So his heart is this way, the picture is God turning it this way, and there is this stream coming out of the king's heart, and God can sovereignly control it by affecting his desires, and so that what he wants to do changes. What he wants to do changes. But God is in control of that. He turns it wherever he wills. Okay? All right, Amos 3 6. Okay, so, oh no, why did our city get destroyed? Oh no, we were just the, um, you know, this was just a great misfortune. We had an economic downturn and there were some bad political relations in the region, and here we are, and now our city's gone. It says, no, the destruction of a city. It's from the Lord. Downfall of a city, from the Lord. We've seen in Daniel that the rise and fall of nations, from the Lord. Okay? It wasn't some kind of accident. It wasn't kind of, uh, some kind of poor historical contingency. It was from the Lord's hand. Okay, Isaiah 46, 8 through 11. Thank you. 
I declare the end from the beginning. That's a merism for everything. I declare everything that comes to pass. Okay? I have spoken. I will bring it to pass. Verse 11. I have purposed. I will do it. Verse 10. My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. And then you even get an example. Calling a bird of prey from the east. The man of my counsel from a far country. I call people out of nations. I command the animals. I declare the end from the beginning. There isn't something in this scope that isn't part of what I declare. And I will bring it to pass. That's the idea. Meticulous predetermination. Okay? Matthew 10, 29 and 30. Okay, sparrows, little birds, no one thinks very much of. They die all the time. He says, not one of them dies apart from my sovereign hand. And even the very hairs on your head that go down, and they connect into the little follicle in your skin. Those are numbered. And not one of those is going to fall apart from the sovereignty of God. Uh, it, it, he, is, he is in total control over even all the, the tiniest little details. The lot cast into the lap. Hair on numbering hairs on your head. They are numbered. Acts 2. All right, so you're, in these last two, you're going to see kind of more a redemptive coming together. All right, we've talked about meticulous predetermination, but I haven't talked about anything particularly redemptive, right? I've just talked about meticulous sovereignty. These two, you're going to see it come together, okay? All right, Acts 2, 22 through 23. So, he is holding people accountable. He's saying this happened according to the definite plan of God. The definite foreknowledge of God. This isn't something that just happened and then God improv because he's awesome and made something of it. That this, this thing that was thousands and thousands of years coming and this thing that involved people sinning gratuitously and treating him unjustly, a mock trial, all of it were determined according to the plan of God, foreknowledge of God himself. I skipped Katie Butler. By the way, last time I gave Katie something to read, it was a verse that didn't exist. Um, and then, uh, then I skipped over her this time. I feel really bad, so I apologize for my oversight. I don't know what that is. I promise it's, it's, it's not you. Okay, Ephesians 1.11, uh, read that for us. Okay, so in him we were chosen. In him we were predestined. We are being, we, we are, what is it, just according to what? Random lot? No, it is according to his will that he has purposed the same will that he said he would bring to pass. He has purposed this. He has chosen. He has predestined these things 
Uh, it's just right off right off the pages of scripture there. And then finally, let's look at Acts 4, 23 through 27. Oh yeah, uh, I'm sorry. sorry. That was like the critical verse. Yeah, sorry, so I left that out. Um, yes, so um, you get through this whole list, and I says the, the twenty-seven through twenty-nine is the most important in, in, for our purposes here, right? In this city, they were gathered all kinds of people: Herod, Pontius Pilate. You've got some little puppet kings there, uh, governors, uh, the Gentiles. And God's people, they were all gathered, and they were gathered there not to have a party um, and not to just hang out, but to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Again, predestined here it isn't talking about uh, predestination to salvation. It's talking about determining beforehand the crucifixion of Jesus. Okay? Predestination here is not ta- is not talking specifically about predestining people to salvation. It's talking about predetermining, meticulous predetermination. All these people that are gathered here together to do something very specific that I've planned. It's been this way for I've planned this out. It's been thousands of years coming, and they are gathered to get. They were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Okay. Meticulous predetermination. Any questions about meticulous predetermination before we move to all the passages supporting unconditional election to salvation? Okay, so we know that he purposes all things according with his will, and Ephesians 1.11 gave a little bit of that certainly as a salvific passage. Uh, but he, is, he has every single thing under his control. Let's look at Ephesians 3.3, Ephesians. Let's look at chapter 3.3, uh, and par- uh, paragraph 3 and paragraph 5 of chapter 3. By the decree of God, for the manifestation of His glory, some men and angels are predestinated, which is the older language, or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ, to the praise of His glorious grace, others left behind to act in their sin to their just condemnation, to the praise of His glorious justice. So the idea there is that elect receive mercy, everyone else receives justice, um, it gets exactly what they deserve, but there's no injustice in God. There's no injustice in God there. There is grace and mercy. There is justice, um, but neither one makes God out to be something other than perfect. Those of mankind that are predestinated to life, God, before the foundation of the world was laid, according to his eternal and immutable purpose, that's unchangeable, And the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory out of his mere free grace and love without any other thing in the creature as a condition or cause, moving him thereunto. And that is the idea of unconditional election. Unconditional election. Very, uh, But to be very clear, unconditional does not mean arbitrary. 
Just because we are not privy to the inscrutable counsel of God's will and His gracious eternal purposes does not mean that the elect resulted from God playing a salvific version of Russian roulette or any meeny miny mo. Okay? Uh, just because we don't understand the counsel of God's will or His purposes doesn't mean that God was up there uh, rolling dice. Okay? It means that there is that, that God's election was uh, of us was not based on anything in us, anything that we would do, anything that we could do, anything particularly virtuous, anything that He foreknew. It was unconditional in that sense. Now, um, We'll talk about this next time, but the reason I have unconditional, oh, I don't actually have it in, uh, um, I don't have it there, but but our Arminian friends do believe in election, and they do believe in predestination, because if you're going to read the Bible seriously, you have to believe in election and predestination. It's just not unconditional election. They believe in conditional election based on foreknowledge, okay? So what God elects is a criterion or an empty set. Something like those who would repent and believe. All right, that it's like a corporate election. Define God elects a criteria into which people repent and believe, and He knows beforehand who's going to do that. Okay, I do not think that has any plausibility whatsoever. I uh, will look at that in the text, but that's the idea. Or many there you 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 have a lot of people that well, what are the Arminians make this? Well, they do believe in predestination and election. It's just a conditional version of it. It's, they understand it differently. Okay, so we got a, uh, we got a couple minutes here. Let's see if we can, uh, let's see if we can go through these, or at least a couple of them, okay? I'm going to auction off this set as well. And there are, again, I was spoiled for options, which is a good thing, I guess, when you're trying to define your theology, but this is what we got to go with, all right? So first, John 10, 22 through 29. Who wants that one? Asher. Acts 13, 48. Chris, Glenn, Ephesians 1, 3 through 11, Romans 8, 29 and 30, Josh, Romans, I'll give you Romans 9, 1 through 14, Katie, yes, just because I've skipped over you, you treated you poorly here apparently, 1 Thessalonians 5, 8 through 10, Ben, 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9, Noah, Two more, 2 Peter 2.3, 2 Peter 2.3, Michael, and then finally Jude 4, Jude 4, Seth in the back. All right, so everyone listen carefully. We don't get, we probably will not get to the, <laughs> we probably have to stop right before Romans 9, 1 through 14. That is so sad. Oh my goodness. But we'll see, because we're at 940 here. But maybe not. All right, John 10, 20 through, 22 through Okay, so we, by the way, I'm skipping over John 6, and something like, whoa, why are you skipping over John 6? Because we talked about it with effectual calling, the drawing that I'll raise, 
that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me, uh, the Father who sent me, draws him. I'll raise him up on the last day. Instead, I'm looking at John 10 here. We learn two things: that there are people that the Father gives to Christ. There are people, individuals, sheep described as sheep, that God has pictured the Father as given to Christ, and Christ says that no one will be able to snatch them out of my hand. And then he says this passage, which has stumped so many people for so long, just this, this pebble in people's shoe trying to get around this. It says, you do, verse 26, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Now, what if I asked you, and generally, how do you become one of God's sheep or something? You would say something like, well, you repent and believe the gospel, Okay. But this is a theological backstory. This says, no, 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 this is, this is he's saying, here's why you don't believe. Let me tell you, I, we don't believe you, okay? Why will you hold us in suspense? Just come on, come out and tell us about it. He said, you, know, you want me to tell you why you don't believe? You're not a sheep, that's why. You're not a sheep. It puts it backwards from what we are used to hearing to make a point about why these people are not believing. Why are these people believing and these people aren't believing? Because these people are sheep who hear my voice and these people are not. That's why. Okay? Okay. Um, next passage, Acts 30, uh, 13, 48. This is a real straightforward one. So as many who were appointed to eternal life believe, it's the same word that you would appoint someone in a... In a, in a, to a particular position or into a particular role. Um, I have to say that some of the translation attempts or the interpretive attempts to take that reflexively uh, are just humorous, all right? So you might have heard this, maybe not, but there are some attempts to understand that as everyone who appointed themselves to eternal life believe. Like there was a concept of like self-appointing yourself to a position in that day. I mean, it's just, but that's the idea. They're trying to get around that, okay? That these people were appointed for this, um, and, and they uh, for believing. Okay, Ephesians. Uh, you know what? So I'm going. Let's do. A, oh, you know what? Let's do Romans. Eight, we're going to skip Ephesians one three through eleven, and then the Romans nine because those are we got. We need to slow down on those two. Those are anchor passages here. So let, let's read Romans eight twenty nine through thirty. So we're skipping over somebody. Um, yeah, who's got that? You, Okay, so we're going to talk about what foreknowledge is and isn't next time we're together. I'm going to suggest that the, when, you, when, when you see foreknowledge in the New Testament, um, the vast majority of time you're not talking, of, you're, it's not talking about so, uh, God looking into the future and seeing things and knowing truths, it's knowing people. Like how Adam, to give a real intimate example, Adam knew his wife. Okay, there's knowing, then there's knowing. All right, there's knowing that, then there's knowing a person. There's propositional knowledge that certain things would be the case, and then there's direct personal knowledge of someone, like I know this person as opposed to knowing facts about them. So when it says that there was um, that those he foreknew, he also predestined, it doesn't mean that those he knew would repent and believe he predestined, uh, because the predestining is explaining, uh, it gets some of the explanatory order, order backwards to even think of it like that. We'll go into that. But those who, the, the, you have the explicit mention of the foreknowing, I'm going to say foreloving here, those he foreloved, I'm going to gloss that, he also predestined to determine beforehand to what? To be conformed to the image of his son. 
And those who predestined, he called. He called, those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the so-called golden chain there in Romans. No dropouts. No dropouts. From foreloving to glorification, there are no, no dropouts in that. Because God has set, set, uh, set aside um, his elect that he has foreloved and he has called them out of darkness and secures them to the end. Okay, next time we come back, we'll look at the, the meteor passages, Ephesians 1, 3 through 11, and Romans uh, 9, 1 through 14, along with the rest of them. And then we'll, we'll look at some explicit examples um, talking about how the number one pushback to, of course, condition, unconditional election is conditional election based on foresight. And we're going to we'll go through example, multiple examples of where foreknowledge um, does not mean knowing beforehand so that we can kind of undercut that objection. And really, and Romans 9 is going to help us preserve, the and, and the Ephesians 1 uh, passage are going to help us get the unconditional part of this. So far, we've really gotten the, the determined beforehand salvation part, but we haven't heard the text about the unconditional part quite as much, and we're going to get there next time. Okay? Let's pray. God, this, these are uh, amazing things. These are things that anyone who truly understands cannot help but to be humbled by. Uh, and, we, and we are thankful. We're thankful that you've called people out of darkness who would never come otherwise. We're thankful to be the recipients of mercy if we're in Christ Jesus. Help us, Lord, um, to walk in your will, to seek it in the word, and strive for holiness. Be with us in our next hour of worship, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.